Welcome to Season 2 of History, Politics, and Beer, the podcast that examines contemporary issues through the lens of history. Now, from the home office in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, we invite you to sit back with an ice-cold one and enjoy the pontifications of your hosts, Matt Shockey and Jeff Hudson. All right, boys and girls, welcome back to another edition of History, Politics, and Beer. We are sitting back in the Lancaster studios, away from the Gettysburg battlefield, and we're going to finish up these two podcasts this week and next week uh, from the home offices here. And we are back to bringing the beer back into history, politics, and beer. We were on the federal property, um, and we played with the idea of bringing beer on federal property, Jeff, but we thought maybe being arrested wouldn't be a good thing for the podcast. No, and it would have stopped it right in its tracks. And, you know, that, that's a big deal for us. That's a, that's a field trip for us. We didn't want it to end real quick. We had a good breakfast that morning. Yeah. And a great lunch. I forget what the name of the bar oh, was. That was the Appalachian Brewing Company. Appalachian Brewing Company. Yeah, we had good beer and good food there. Oh, it was, yeah. You can have a good time in Gettysburg. It was a beautiful fall day. We actually ended up starting to record um, over on the northern side of the battlefield. And we finally, because of noise, ended up on Big Round Top, actually right. kind of in the middle of the woods, all set up. So even though if you listen to those podcasts, it kind of sounds like we're nowhere outside. We are absolutely outside. Yeah. It was a beautiful day. So, hey, we are. it is uh, October. We are both drinking an Oktoberfest. Uh, I'm drinking one from Sam Adams. I'm drinking one from Brooklyn. Uh, all the American brewers come out with their version of Oktoberfest this time of year in honor of the German festival that I think everybody knows about. It. I just saw, and this, this is a site that I, I hope to forget soon, but I saw a picture of Bill Clinton just this month and Lederhosen <laughs> <laughs> attending. Is that a fetish of his? <laughs> Lederhosen? <laughs> attending the, uh, the Munich Oktoberfest. And, you know, I thought it was an unfortunate choice, but, you know, um, given Clinton's other choices, I, you know, I don't think he has a lot of great taste. So let's go with the later hosen. Yeah, later hosen. Okay, he looks horrible, doesn't he? He doesn't look good physically. I mean, I hate to make fun of someone's looks, yeah. but he just doesn't look healthy to me. Yeah, yeah, but you know, I don't know how Trump was looking later hosen. It's hard <laughs> when they're in later hosen. It's hard to get a good comparison. You know, now, Obama might look svelte, but he would look funny in later hosen too. Not you know, too many. You know, there is a picture of later There's a picture of Adolf Hitler in later hosen. Oh, that's another image I would like to get out of my my head. <laughs> I think he's standing by a tree. I don't know. Who okay. Was, like, well. hey, hey, know what? No, would you look good in boss? Later who's in by a tree. That's gonna that's a picture of strength for you. All right, let's get down to brass tacks here. Um today this we're gonna talk about the day three of the Battle of Gettysburg. Um, and we're going to take our first podcast. Obviously, these are all about slavery. We took slavery through the origins of slavery, the causes of the Civil War. Uh, we're going to pick this up in basically 1862, right before the Emancipation Proclamation. And we're going to take this the whole way through until Lincoln's inaugural, his assassination. Uh, and then the next podcast, we'll pick up with Reconstruction and the successes and failures. All right. So let's open up in 1862. Um Early on, this is not a war about slavery. This is a war about saving the Union. Um, Lincoln is very clear about this. Um, he wants to keep as many states loyal to the Union as possible. 
And if he uses slavery as a wedge issue, he's going to lose to border states. And that's uh, Kentucky, Missouri, West Virginia, Maryland, and Maryland, Delaware, yep. uh, who all remain loyal to the Union, and, were, and which were very important. Um, in 1862, Horace Greeley, Greeley uh, editor of the New York Tribune, uh, writes an open letter, an editorial to Lincoln called The Prayer of 20 Millions, uh, making demands and implying that Lincoln's administration lacked direction and resolve. Um, Lincoln used this opportunity to write an open letter back. Now, he kind of ignored um, the central issue of what Greeley was bringing up, but he did address in 1862, uh, this is in August of 1862, um, what the issue was. He says, my paramount object in this struggle is to save the Union and is not to either save or to destroy slavery. If I could save the Union without freeing any slave, I would do it. And if I could save the, by freeing all the slaves, I would do it. And if I could save it by freeing some and leaving others alone, I would also do that. Basically saying whatever he does about slavery and the, what he calls the colored race is going to be for the preservation of the Union. Now, this is interesting that this uh, he writes this letter in 1862 because sitting in his desk in the White House is the Emancipation Proclamation. So he's already made the decision to make slavery an issue in this war. Well, right. And and slavery was an issue to Lincoln in this sense. He was never going to allow the expansion of slavery. Which no. is so you know, uh so when we talk about slavery, we got we have to be very specific. Uh Lincoln's election was going to prohibit the expansion of slavery. And that's why the Southerners uh seceded from the Union and and bombarded Fort Sumter and 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 that's it. But he he had no intention and, and said in his inaugural and, and said to Horace Greeley, I'm not going in and, and I'm changing anything. You can have the slaves in your states. If that preserves the Union, so be it. Just exactly what you said. Uh, but by 1862, of course, the war, especially in the East, didn't go that well for the Union uh, and and. Uh, People are becoming discouraged. Some people said that the Emancipation Proclamation uh, was a trick by Lincoln to get more people behind the war because there was a big abolition, uh, abolitionist sentiment, uh, fervent. It, you know, it wasn't the majority of people, but it was very fervent. And some people said that, you know, Lincoln's just going to do that to, to get more people behind this thing. Well, I think, I think that we could make a statement pretty uh, accurate to say that if the war went well early on, there isn't an emancipation. If this is put down really quickly at the first battle of Bull Run, well, there wouldn't be a second battle if the first battle went right. well. If the if this is put down the at Bull Run early on and slavery exists, Lincoln is not – I mean, there was even an attempt to compromise – I forget the name of the compromise, but it was brought to Lincoln in an effort to compromise before the war began. And Lincoln turned that compromise down because it was going to have the expansion of slavery. He says, I'm not going to do that. Um, and as you said, it was not to interfere with slavery in the states. So it is in some sort of weird paradoxical way, only because the union loses early on does slavery – the emancipation of slaves becomes a necessity of war. And I do think there's a lot to be said for using slavery as a, not called a wedge issue, but certainly as an issue to help fuel the uh, war movement in the North and also to let the world know and send a message to Europe about what this war was really about. Right. And, and remember that uh, we're talking with Abraham Lincoln, a mature individual. <laughs> 
So I think some people say, well, he he was uh, not anti-slavery. Lincoln personally didn't like slavery. There's lot there's incidents he talks about about seeing yeah, slaves. It's, it's very clear. He's he, he didn't think they were equal to him. Right. He, he I think his statement was that they should be afforded the same right as him or the same opportunity as him to allow his talents to take them as far as they could possibly go. Uh, a black man should have that same opportunity that he had. There was very few people like Garrison, William Lee Garrison, who was writing the, uh, the, the abolitionist newspaper, The Liberator, who actually believed in equality. Um, to- total equality. Total equality. Right. Lincoln was not there. Lincoln was very no. progressive for the time period, but he wasn't a radical in that sense. And, and you got to remember, too, uh, he was a person that grew up on farms, and, and uh, especially in Indiana as a farmer. He was used to hard physical work. And, Illinois. Uh, well, he and a lot of his childhood was in Indiana. Oh, was it? Okay. Then, then he did move to Illinois. But the but the the point is, uh, these guys who had their own farms. If you think about it, they're not gonna. They don't. Not only is the the slavery that uh, has the potential, if it's allowed in the expanding union, to prevent them from having their own place. I mean, they're not going to respect people that don't do their own hard work. Right. Have you ever, I mean, farmers today, spend a day with them, see what time they get up, see what, see what they do during uh, planting season and harvest. You know, they, uh, in, in other words, it's, it's not specifically, or I wouldn't say specifically, it's not always about race. It's about uh, one group of people who are used to working really hard on their own, really hard physical labor. Looking at another group that's kind of, uh, they feel, coasting. Other people are doing their hard work. And by the way, there are a lot of people in the South who looked at Southern planters that same way, too, because they were small farmers. Sure. If you get into Western Tennessee, for example, as we pointed out earlier, a lot of those people remain loyal to the Union uh, for that. They were against slavery. Um, Lincoln decides in 1862 that he is going to emancipate the slaves. Um, He pulls his cabinet together. Not so much to discuss it, but really to discuss how it should be announced. Uh, William Seward suggests that Lincoln wait for a Union victory, or he said it would be a cry for help, our last shriek on the retreat, if we did not have a victory before we applaud, before we before we um, issue this emancipation. So it gets pigeonholed for a little bit until September of 1862. Um, I don't know if we want to call it a victory, but certainly Antietam, um, September of 1862 in Maryland, is that quote-unquote victory. Um, Lincoln issues the emancipation, basically saying all the slaves that are in states that are in rebellion will be freed as of January 1st, 1863, unless those states come back into the Union. So he does give them, a lot of people don't know that, he does give them a door to keep their slaves if they come back into the Union. Of course, no one takes them up on that. Um, And in January 1st, 1863, the Emancipation Proclamation goes into effect. Many people think that the Emancipation Proclamation didn't free anybody, and that's not true. Actually, it freed... I forget the exact number, but ten to twenty thousand slaves, because the Union Army was in areas um, cont- of the Confederacy, and they were in control. So it did free some slaves, but the vast majority of slaves it did not touch. Um, but the Emancipation Proclamation does a lot; it changes the focus of the war. No longer are we just fighting to save the Union. Now we bring it to a higher cause. We're now fighting for the freedom of the slaves. 
And something- as a battle hymn of the Republic, as he died to make men holy, we will die to make them free. So now there's a now it becomes a great crusade, and it also sends a message to Europe. Uh, the South is going to need Europe European intervention to win this war. And in one fell swoop, Lincoln changes the focus of the war to being about slavery. And England and France are not going to come in on the side of the of the Confederacy if they're fighting to maintain slavery. So the Emancipation Proclamation is one of those really shows, I think, the greatness of Lincoln and how he understood the political um, backdrop of the Civil War and how he was able to move the the pieces on the chessboard to suit him. Now, um, in 1863 is a very telling year for uh, the Union. Uh, we get the Emancipation Proclamation, and Gettysburg is the turning point of the Civil War, the high water mark. It's the most northern um, – the the Confederate Army will come. This is January. I'm sorry, July first, second, and third in 1863. Um, and we talked about day one and day two already. We want to talk a little bit about day three. Um, do you think we should summarize very quickly day one and day two again? Sure. I mean, uh, they the uh, South came in from the north. They were held up by General Buford, who saw the value of the high ground behind the town uh, behind him, which was Gettysburg. Uh, he delayed the Southerners long enough that the Union could move in there. On the second day, uh, Lee, who, remember, had generally uh, been uh, successful against the Northern generals. He felt he could win a battle there, even though there was no battle planned. And basically, they attacked the left flank of the Union Army and the right flank. Uh, the, the right flank of the Union Army was Culp's Hill. They couldn't get around that. Uh, Joshua Chamberlain and the 20th Maine kept them from getting around the Union left flank. So the third day, the armies are still sitting there, Union on the high ground, uh, the south below, and he decides to go right to the center. He's tried both flanks. That didn't work. Now, General Longstreet wanted to try a flank again, and but uh, he decided, Lee decided to go right to the center. He massed his artillery we had one of the biggest uh, bombardments in history up until that time. We now know that the cannons were set a little too high, I think, mm-hmm. and exploded behind a lot of the shells behind the Union line. And then uh, General Pickett leading the charge, his unit leading the charge. I think there were about 15,000 Southerners uh, went up toward the middle of the Union line. Now, there's an interesting little sub-note uh, there. Uh, James Longstreet, who was the, the commander of... Pickett and the other generals who had, were ordered up there uh, supposedly refused to give the order because he thought it was suicidal. He had seen Union attacks at Fredericksburg and other places found her, and he didn't want any part of that. In his, uh, his version of it, he, he told Lee, General, I've been a soldier all my life. I've been with soldiers engaged in fights by couples, by squads, companies, regiments, division, and armies, and should know as well as anyone what soldiers can do. It is my opinion that no 15,000 men ever arranged for battle can take that position. That's what Longstreet said he said. He didn't want to do it. And this is where we see, you know, everybody thinks Lee's a strategic genius. And, you know, Lee's first invasion of the North ended in Antietam. He didn't even get to the Mason-Dixon line. No. This ends about 20 miles north of the Mason-Dixon line. So Lee certainly was a great defensive general. As far as getting his, uh, you know, his invasions of the North were spectacularly unsuccessful. 
And this this is and so they charge up the hill. I don't know if you want to tell any more of that story that Pickett well, you, comes up the hill. Well, you and I both have walked Pickett's Charge. Yep. Um, and when you come out of the woods, um, it's about a mile across that open field. You can see the whole way across. I forget what the name of the road is that uh, the that the Union is dug in on. It keeps my mind right now. But you can see that whole road. You can see up to Little Round Top. Every on the one ca- side, yeah. Every cannon, every gun is focused down on this field. Um, it is so, sort of awe-inspiring to think that anyone in their right mind would walk across that field. Um, you walk across the field, and what you don't see when you're just looking out over the field is that there is a divot in the field. And when you get about halfway across the field, you can actually go down into a little ravine and that you cannot be seen anymore. So the, the Confederate Army went about halfway out, regrouped in this ravine, came up out of the ravine and attacked the Union line. And it they did breach the line at one point, um, not nearly enough to break through. And, um, and the Union still had regiments in reserve, right. too. So. Um, it was a resounding defeat. I believe Pickett uh, is... I think Lee S. Pickett, where his regiment is, and I think he says dead on the field uh, or something along those lines. I don't think Pickett ever forgives Lee. I think he says later on, that old man had my regiment slaughtered um, at Gettysburg. I think Gettysburg is, for Lee, I hate to call it arrogance, but this idea that he, if he asked his men to do something, they would do it. They have been successful so many times. Antietam is certainly an exception to that. and Gettysburg simply wasn't that. It's even said, and I don't know how true this is, if this is just writing after the battle to make things sound better, but that as the con- as the uh, Confederate troops were approaching the Union line, that the Union men were chanting Fredericksburg, 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 uh, into revenge of what happened on Mary Maurice Heights in Fredericksburg in 62, I think that right, was. Where the Union had to charge up. But, right. But, but, you know, the, the old saw is true. Uh, a lot of times uh, generals fight the, uh, the new war using the old war's tactics. Right. But by this time, they should have known that he, rifled musketry and uh, cannons loaded with grape shot, which for those of you listening who don't know what that is, it basically is making a cannon into a shotgun. Right. You just put uh, a load of these balls that will spray out. And uh, it just you just couldn't do it anymore. The firepower was was uh, was too much. And uh, again, I think Longstreet anticipated World War One and those charges. You can't do it. We can ask ask them to do it, but they cannot take this ground. And that's what happened. Uh, Lee's soldiers were uh, massacred. It was a resounding defeat. Uh, the next day, his army uh, begins its retreat uh, back to the south. Again, uh, uh, the Union Army does not follow. And again, that's going to be a source of frustration right. to Abraham Lincoln. Uh, and Lincoln is well aware that the North has superior firepower and manpower, and he wants the Southern Army destroyed. It was a really bad day that uh, July 4th for uh, the Confederates, because not only did the news get around the nation of their uh, General Lee's defeat at Gettysburg, there was another big battle fought at Vicksburg. Well, there was a siege uh, at Vicksburg. siege of Vicksburg, which had just resulted in the Union taking that city, which w- Vicksburg, Mississippi, which was the last Southern stronghold 
on the Mississippi River, and now the Union had cut the South, uh, not quite in half because that's not where the Mississippi is, and now they control the Mississippi River. Uh, what did they, what did Link, uh, they say? It, uh, I won't win until I have the key to the Mississippi. I think, yeah. and the I think Vicksburg now the keys in my pocket. Or so, is that what, is that the quote you're talking well, about? Well, I, I think Grant said something. The father of Waller's flows unvexed to the sea, or something like that. But anyhow, you guys get the, uh, you get the point. Uh, that that July Fourth, the national holiday, uh, the one that uh, you know. Um, Lincoln will eventually refer to in his address uh, was a great in 1863. It was a great time for the Union because after that, the South had really no chance of, of winning. It and was just going to be defense. How long they could drag it out? And in Vicksburg, uh, how much does this stick in the crawl of the people of Vicksburg? People of Vicksburg don't celebrate July 4th until after World War II. Uh, or actually, two, yeah, I think till after World War II, they finally joined the rest of the nation. For them, it was a day of mourning because they had, I mean, that's how powerful um, the legacy of some of this stuff was. So uh, early July, 1863, everything changes. Gettysburg is won by the North, Vicksburg falls. Uh, and as Jeff said, really, the war isn't over, but it looks highly unlikely that the, that the Confederates are going to be able to win that war. Um, which brings us to a moment. Um, there's a lot of some big events in history, and I, sometimes there's moments to history. And November 19th, 1863, um, there is 17 acres purchased in Gettysburg for uh, a cemetery, um, which that was happened within six weeks uh, on Cemetery Hill to bury 3,500 soldiers by state. Uh, they were buried hastily and dug graves all over the battlefield, so they had to go back in, dig everyone up, bring everyone over to Cemetery Hill. Well, um, farmers were going across their fields and and have uh, you know a skeleton they would discover, right. and it, it was and, and it was recognized not only was this uh, horrifying, it was unsanitary to have, and so they had this whole idea of creating this national cemetery. Um, so, and very soon after the battle, people came, uh, families, veterans, uh, souvenir hunters. Uh, by the early 20th century, over a million visitors a year are going to be coming to Gettysburg. But that doesn't gets us a little bit ahead. So let's jump back until that November 1863 uh, for the dedication of this battlefield, uh, November 19th. Um, Lincoln, what, what I read about this, I get a lot of conflicting information about the Gettysburg Address. Um some people say Lincoln was invited as an afterthought, um, which I find hard to believe that you invite the president of the United States as an afterthought. Uh, he wasn't the main speaker that day. A guy by the name of uh, Edward Everett, a diplomat from Massachusetts, was there, and he actually spoke for two hours. Gave the whole history of the battle. Right. Did he really? Yeah. Is that part of oh, it? Yeah. That's all it was, the history of the battle. And if you you will read different things about the um, conflicting information that uh, I actually read something that the, that the speech was interrupted five times with applause. I don't know if that's true, but I read that in an account. Um, I read an account that Lincoln thought it was a horrible address. And then I read someplace else where he didn't think it was a horrible address. Um, but it, it is powerful. Um, and you want to take a little bit of this, Jeff, start off with the four score um, and talk a little bit about the address that he gives. It's, it's only about two minutes long. Yeah. Uh, well, you know, at Lincoln, this is a time period when uh, presidents uh, will write their own 
speeches, at least uh, uh, some of the time, and Lincoln certainly wrote this. And you should know that Lincoln uh, grew up uh, reading the King James Version of the Bible, and you can hear that when uh, in his uh, speech. Another very interesting thing, I think, about Abraham Lincoln and his speaking style is that he generally tended to give much shorter addresses anyhow than his uh, predecessors did. And some people feel that he was really, he knew that the telegraph was really important. And he wanted, this is how this speech would be, there was no recordings. This is how the speech would be disseminated to the main way people got news, which is newspapers. And so he intentionally kept things very hmm. short. Okay, uh, people think because a modern president, a modern pre- he would be uh, easy to uh, broadcast that along the telegraph, and it could be in print the next day or two, and people could uh, feel part of the event in a way they weren't before. So anyhow, Lincoln starts off. We uh, people who are older probably had to memorize this. Uh, uh, at one point, we don't make them. Uh, kids do that anymore, but it's a great speech. Starts off four score and seven years ago. That's 87 years. Uh, our, fa- our forefathers brought forth upon this continent a new nation conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. So right there in the very beginning, you see that, remember, he's there. He's trying to give meaning to not only Gettysburg, but to the horrible slaughter that has taken place in this nation. A lot of people don't realize Civil War had probably modern scholars think 700,000 people were killed in this, uh, soldiers were killed in the Civil War. And the population of the country was what, maybe 30 million tops. Yeah, I think today, I think the numbers maybe are 13 million or 11 million if, the, if it were held today, what the casualty right. rate would be for the United States. Everybody had an uncle, a right. son, a cousin, a brother. Uh, that was involved in this conflict, and a lot of people shared uh, somebody who had been a casualty, uh, uh, shared a family member who had been a casualty of this. So he had he was trying to give meaning to this. And so he goes right back to the founding. He goes right back to the Declaration of Independence, because that's what took place for uh, 87 years before uh, the, the uh, Battle of Gettysburg. And he mentions the dedication to the proposition that all men are created equal. Now the Civil War is about equality, all men being created equal. And he takes us back to the Declaration, not the Constitution. Well, he died in the Constitution at the end, though. Yes. Because in the ending of it, he says, giving meaning to the battle, he says that these dead shall not have died in vain, that this nation under God shall have a new birth of freedom and that government of the people by the people for the people shall not perish from the earth. He mentions the people three times. And remember, we had talked about the Southern theory of that they could secede came from the idea that they were states. They joined the states, and they were going to leave its states. And Lincoln very intentionally goes right back to the preamble of the Constitution and that the authority of the Constitution, and therefore his authority as president of the United States, rest on we, the people, not one state, not Virginia, not South Carolina, but the new American people. So it's a specific rebuttal to the Cornerstone speech uh, given by Stevens, where he says, we don't believe uh, people are equal, and to the Confederate theory of government, which is based on uh, the states being voluntary members of this and that they can leave. 
Right. Um, this idea of changing what this nation is about, uh, the historian Shelby Foote, and actually Shelby Foote really wasn't a historian. Um, he became a historian sort of by accident. Um, he started writing about the Civil War and, and it never ended for him. Uh, but it was not going to be his main passion in life and it ended up being. Um, Shelby Foote says really what the Civil War did and what the Gettysburg Address did is it made an R and is. And what that means is he said, before the Civil War, you used to say the United States are going to do something. The states were a group. And after the Civil War, it became an is. The United States is this or is that. It brought us together as a whole. It made us stop thinking of ourselves as individual states and start thinking of ourselves as a whole country. Um, if you looked at the founding fathers, they referred to as their country, their home state of Massachusetts and Virginia. Uh, and in many ways, that was carried on for those 87 years from the Declaration of Independence up to Gettysburg, that you thought of yourself from your state first. And this is really, I think, what the Civil War helped end. It helped end the idea that we were individual states. We are now a unified country. Um Two minutes, the Gettysburg Address, uh, 272 words. You will get a, if you look that up to try to fact check me, you'll get a few different things on that, uh, depending on what version of the speech that you read. I think there's three versions of the speech. So slavery becomes the central issue. Freedom becomes the central issue. Bookmarked, bookended with the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Um as the war is grinding to a halt, uh, to a finish, Lincoln wants to put into the Constitution the abolition of slavery. And this is where we get to 13th Amendment. Uh, it was actually attempted the first time in 1864 um, uh, to abolish slavery. It passed the U.S. Senate, but it died in the House um, as the Democrats rallied in states' rights. Um, after the election of 1864, uh, Lincoln won. Um, the soldiers were allowed to vote in this election, and Lincoln wins. And there's super majorities actually in both houses of Congress now. And the 13th Amendment goes back, and it passes both houses of Congress. States approve it, and now we have the eradication of slavery. So, in essence, we no longer need the Emancipation Proclamation. The Emancipation Proclamation can be considered a war measure and now involuntary servitude, uh, except as punishment for a crime. And we could do a whole podcast on that, um, on that statement right there, because there are people out there now, um, not to give Kanye West uh, credit, because this is way before Kanye started mouthing off. A lot of people don't like that part of the 13th Amendment, except as punishment for a crime which many people read that you still can have slaves right. if it's punishment for a crime, but that's for another time. I do think that's an interesting read on that. So the 13th Amendment, uh, slavery is going to end. Um, Lee goes as long as he can, um, running away, fighting a defensive battle. And after Vicksburg in 1863, uh, Lincoln found his man, and the man was Grant. Um Grant understood, and Lincoln says that, said this early in the war, that he would win the war as soon as he found the general who understood the math. And the math basically was is that the Union could lose men, the South couldn't. doesn't really make a difference if you win or lose battles. Just keep grinding away. And, and, and the Union could lose cannons and muskets right. and shoot more, because they could produce those things. Right. So, and, 
He said it was math. He knew it. Right. And this is what Grant is going to do. Matter of fact, Grant, it gets so bad at the end, Grant gets the nickname The Butcher. Um, I think Mary Todd actually uses that name as well to refer to Grant on how many dead are coming out of Grant's army. But he does. He just leans on Lee, and Lee is unable to uh, withstand it. And Appomattox, April 1865, the war is over. Um, And Lincoln had already been thinking about the end of the war and Reconstruction, and what Reconstruction was going to mean. Um, He believed in an easy Reconstruction and bringing the Confederacy back into the Union quickly. Um, He never really believed that they ever left the Union. He called them states in rebellion. So there really wasn't a need to rebuild them and such. You just had to admit them back in. Um, And he felt the sooner that you could get back to a status quo, not with slavery, but with all the states coming together, participating in a democracy or a republic, the better off we would be. Um, But John Wilkes Booth will have something to say about that. Um, John Wilkes Booth, I don't have this written down. I don't have the date of his assassination. Do you have that written down by any chance? Uh, Yeah. um, You know, Lincoln, uh, I don't have the date of his assassination. Was it it was in uh, was it in May of 1865? It was a month after the war ended. Uh, so I'm going to Google that right now for us. The, uh, April 14th, 1865. Oh, so the, and the war, actually, Lee surrenders uh, on April 9th. Right. And there's still battles going on in the South, like Benville and stuff. So this was right at the end. And I, I think this is something that we need to talk about, this assassination, because uh, John Wilkes Booth, this actor who, who made the— was the ringleader of the conspiracy that killed Lincoln. He actually originally planned to kidnap Lincoln before right. the war was over and maybe take him down south and use him as some kind of bargaining chip. Uh, the war ended before he could get around to that. But Booth had heard uh, Lincoln speak uh, after the South had surrendered on the White House lawn. And this, this kind of shows you things that were like, this is during the Civil War and you're close to the enemy or right after the Civil War, and you're close to the enemy, but this is just, things were so much more open back well, then. Lincoln, there wasn't all this security. And Lincoln's second inaugural, you can see Will, you can see Booth in the picture. Okay. Yeah. So he was- He, he was behind he was behind Lincoln up on one of the okay. higher areas, but you can actually circle Lincoln and circle Booth, which is an amazing photograph. But 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 anyhow, he heard him speak, and, and Lincoln was talking about uh, Reconstruction, and bringing the defeated Confederate states into the Union. And he, he said uh, uh, in that little speech he gave that he wanted to extend the franchise to some African Americans, at the very least, those who fought in the Union ranks. And, you know, there were a few hundred thousand black Union soldiers. Well, 200,000 by the end of the war yeah, in the and, Union. And he, he wanted them to be able to vote. And he also expressed a desire in that speech that Southern states would extend the vote to literate Blacks, blacks that could read and write. And Booth stood in the audience, and it seemed that this was a pivotal point in his actually deciding to go ahead and try to assassinate. According, uh, he said, uh, that means nigger citizenship, he told Lewis Powell, one of his band of conspirators. Now, by God, I'll put him through. That is the last speech he will ever make. So Lincoln actually... Uh, becomes a martyr 
to the desire to not only end slavery, which he is, uh, you know, done by the 13th Amendment, but to to begin to bring at least some blacks, not all, in, right. into the Union as citizens. They're going to be citizens. They're going to have the right to vote, you know? And this, and, and so Booth arranges his assassination. He's killed. And it changes things uh, and tremendously. You no longer have this enormously popular leader, at least in the North, this enormously popular leader. And even though Lincoln, you know, it, it, it's questionable how how strict he would have been on Reconstruction and how you can even question maybe his commitment to equality. But if you read his speeches, even even just the Gettysburg Address and the Second Inaugural. It's clear to me that he would, as he said in Gettysburg, doesn't want these people to have died in vain. So, and no, he had an amazingly strong will. So there would have been a different kind of reconstruction. And you can argue that this was one of, uh, this was certainly a a history-changing assassination. It just changed what happened after the Civil War tremendously. Oh, absolutely. And you get the person coming uh, next is Andrew Johnson. Andrew Johnson is a Democrat from Tennessee. He is the only senator from a Southern state to remain loyal to the Union. Uh, remember, Lincoln's our first president ever to be assassinated. Uh, so I don't know if that's really on people's minds that something like that could and would happen. Um, Andrew Johnson is made vice president strictly for political reasons. Um, Lincoln thinks it would go a long way to helping soothe the transition after the war to have a Southern Democrat on the ticket with him. Um, he wins the election. He is assassinated very soon afterwards in April of 1865, as we already said. And Andrew Johnson then becomes president. Um, Andrew Johnson is not Lincoln. Um, Andrew Johnson, there's no Democrats. The Democrats don't trust him because he's on the ticket with a Republican. The Republicans don't trust him because he's a Democrat. Um, Andrew, and a Southerner. And a Southerner. He's a racist. Um, this is one, one of the big what ifs of the Civil War is what if Lincoln had not been assassinated? How different Reconstruction may have been. It could have ended up completely the same way as a success slash failure. We're going to talk about that in the next podcast. Um, but certainly, if you believe in divine intervention in who becomes president, this really should bury that belief for you that somehow you would want Andrew Johnson as president over Abraham Lincoln. Andrew Johnson was a miserable failure as a president, the wrong man at the wrong time uh, to sit in the Oval Office. Yeah, and eventually uh, the the Republicans, especially the radical Republicans, who are instrumental in getting two more amendments passed during this time, the 14th Amendment that we need to uh, mention and go over, which the the Dred Scott case had had interpreted the Constitution as not allowing uh, slaves to ever become citizens. They're not citizens, and the Fourteenth Amendment specifically uh, overrides that. It says anyway, it, it, it establishes birthright citizenship. If you're born here, you're a citizen. So what do you get as an American citizen? Well, you get two things: you get equal protection under the law. That's a huge, that's a huge thing, and due process, which means that uh, legal processes have to be done. I mean, you can have a legal marriage now if you're a freed slave. Right. If you think, I mean, marriage was 
slave marriages weren't legal, among other things, own property, uh, you know, have uh, due process followed if you're if you are uh, accused of a crime. So this is specifically aimed at giving citizenship to the freed black slaves, uh, mostly in in the South, but also in the border states. And and the Fifteenth Amendment grants the franchise to freed black males. Right. And uh, and, and so uh, this is where the Republicans want to take Reconstruction. But they have a very unwilling partner in Andrew Johnson, and they eventually. How do they now? There's some kind of uh, the Tenure of Office Act. He, he, didn't he want to get? Did he get rid of Seward? Seward. Seward? Right. They they uh, the radical Republicans wanted to make sure that they had a spy in the cabinet, and so you need congressional approval to put a, a person on the cabinet. So they said, well, to remove a person from the cabinet, you're going to need congressional approval, too. So they passed something called the tenure which, of office. Which is not in the Constitution. No. And it was later deemed to be unconstitutional. And that was a constitutional, quote unquote, crisis that got him uh, impeached and right. almost removed from office. Right. Um, so it, with that, you had the 13th Amendment and slavery. 14th Amendment gives you due process and citizenship. The 15th Amendment gives you the right to vote. In essence, the Republicans are looking at this, the, the stones are being laid to the pavement of equality. So I thought I just made that up. Yeah, that's um, good. And it, now it is going to be time to reorganize the South and to make, sh- to preserve this fresh freedom um, to, ap- abs- to actually being implemented. And that's where we're going to go with the next podcast. Right. Um, spoiler alert, it's not implemented. Um, it falls apart, unfortunately. And we are in for another 100 years of segregation and racism and murder and intimidation and all the things that go with it. So, Not equal protection and and not due process. None of those things. So thanks for tuning in, guys. Uh, We'll be back next week um, with the final part of this podcast, the legacy of the Civil War. We're going to take a look at the lost cause. We're going to tackle issues like the Confederate monuments um, and how the Civil War is viewed today. So thanks for tuning in.